Good morning, church family. It is great to be with you on this Palm Sunday. We're going to continue our series through the book of Daniel today. So if you would, please take out your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 739. I've entitled today's message, When a Government Thinks It Is God. Let's bow together in prayer, and then we'll consider the text. Lord, we are so happy to be here on Palm Sunday. Lord, we thank you for all that this day signifies. Lord, the day when your Son publicly revealed himself to be that promised Messiah and Savior of the world. And how the people celebrated, Lord, as they laid their coats and palm branches on the road to Jerusalem so that he could enter in triumph. Lord, we celebrate him today and his work. Lord, our minds also turn to the book of Daniel, and as we continue our series through this book together, would you help us to gain a sense of the significance of the words contained in today's text? Help me, Lord, as I seek to communicate these words in a compelling manner. Uh, Help the hearers as they seek to, to apply the text to their lives. Lord, this church is in your hands. Our individual lives are in your hands. Pray that you would trust us, or that that we would trust you with our lives, that whatever may come in our lives, whatever trials we might face, that you would give us the grace to persevere through them. And Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost never good men. Now, you know that quote. It comes from a letter by the Lord Acton to a British bishop in 1887. And it means that as a man's power increases, his arrogance also tends to increase. And as his arrogance goes up, his moral sensibilities go down. Eventually, a man who has acquired absolute power can even come to think of himself as a god. And he could try to exercise authority over the bodies and souls of his subjects. King Nebuchadnezzar is a case study in this phenomenon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was born in 634 B.C. as the eldest son of King Nebuchadnezzar. He eventually became a general in his father's army. Then after his father passed away, he became king of the Babylonian Empire. Over the course of his long career, King Nebuchadnezzar did some amazing things. He expanded the borders of his empire. He built some extraordinary buildings, including temples, palaces, the famous uh, Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But he also centralized his power more and more. By the time that Daniel and his friends met Nebuchadnezzar, he was a complete madman. He honestly thought of himself as a god. And he wielded his power like a god. Now, back in Daniel chapter 2, we saw how God gave Nebuchadnezzar an opportunity to reconsider his stance. God afflicted Nebuchadnezzar with a nightmare, which put Nebuchadnezzar in a full-blown panic attack. You'll remember the, the image that he saw in that nightmare. It was the image of a great colossus 
Head of gold, chest of silver, belly of bronze, legs of iron, feet, a mixture of iron and clay. And then Nebuchadnezzar saw this stone, which was thrust at the base of the Colossus, shattering the whole thing to bits. Then that little stone grew to become a great mountain, which covered the entire world. This nightmare was given to Nebuchadnezzar by God, and it left Nebuchadnezzar very, very troubled. King Nebuchadnezzar called in his advisors to try to help him understand what the dream meant. He called in his palm readers, his crystal ball gazers, his fortune tellers, all of these kinds of people. They were not able to help him. And this exposed the folly of the religion that Nebuchadnezzar had embraced. Well, then God revealed the content and meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel. Daniel took the information right to Nebuchadnezzar and he said, O king, what you have been tormented by is actually a revelation from God. And it concerns the future. And he explained the meaning of that colossus. He said, O Nebuchadnezzar, the the head of gold on that colossus, that represents you and your Babylonian empire, the most glorious of all the empires. But one day, Nebuchadnezzar, your empire will fall. It'll give way to an empire of silver. That's the Medo-Persian empire. They will have their day in the sun, but one day they will fall too. They'll give way to the empire of bronze, and that is the Grecian empire. They will enjoy their day in the sun, but they will fall too. They will fall to the Romans. That is the empire of iron. He says the Roman empire will last for a time, but then God himself will enter the world and smash the Roman empire and all human governments. And he will establish his own kingdom, the kingdom of God, and it will last forever and ever. No one will be able to break it. Nebuchadnezzar, this is what God has been revealing to you in your nightmares. Friends, for one brief moment, it seemed as if Nebuchadnezzar might have had a conversion experience. In chapter 2, verse 47, Nebuchadnezzar said this to Daniel. He said, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. It sounds almost as if Nebuchadnezzar is ready to forsake all of his false gods, to humble himself before the God of heaven and to worship him as the true God. It looks like a real conversion. But as we now move into Daniel chapter 3, we're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar's so-called conversion was not the real deal after all. And in fact, this king becomes worse than ever. To the point of issuing a decree requiring all of his subjects to begin worshiping him as a god. Daniel chapter 3 is a story about the depths to which a godless government can descend. It's also a story about how God never leaves or forsakes his people, not even when they are being governed by godless men. And it's about how God can glorify himself in the midst of a godless government if his people will respond well to the trial they face. Now, just a quick note here. I was hoping to get through all of Daniel chapter 3 in a single sermon However, by Friday night, I realized this was not going to happen, and so I have broken the chapter into two parts. Today, we'll look at the first half of Daniel 3. 
after the Easter holiday, we will come back and look at the second half of the chapter. Well, let's get started now. We come to verses 1 through 3. Look what Nebuchadnezzar does here. Okay, keeping in mind that Nebuchadnezzar is merely a case study in the behavior of all godless governments. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, that's 90 feet, and its breadth, 6 cubits, that's 9 feet. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, so King Nebuchadnezzar has erected a statue in Babylon. Statue is 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. It's all overlaid with gold. And it's been erected as a monument to his own greatness. And what makes this whole thing really sick is that Nebuchadnezzar probably got the idea for this colossus from the nightmare that God had afflicted him with back in the prior chapters. Remember, in in those dreams, Nebuchadnezzar saw this great statue and the head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. Well, that was a nightmare designed to teach Nebuchadnezzar about the greatness of God. (laughs) Through that dream, God was saying to Nebuchadnezzar, Listen, king, I know all things. I know the future, and I am sovereign over the course of history. And one day, I am going to bring my own kingdom into the world. It's going to smash all the kingdoms of men. Understand, Nebuchadnezzar, that I know all things. I am all-powerful. I am sovereign. I will bring my will to bear in this world. Unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar has now taken that nightmare and used it as an occasion to celebrate his own greatness. Nebuchadnezzar can't get over the fact that the head of the statue, which represented him, was made of gold. And so now he decides to build an entire colossus made of gold. And it all represents him. And you see that the king has invited a who's who of Babylon to come and join him in the dedication of this statue. He has invited prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and on and on it goes, all the movers and shakers of ancient Babylon. Now, friends, what we have here is exhibit A of Lord Acton's proverb that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Give a man enough power, let him hold on to it long enough, and he will come to think of himself as a god. He will demand worship from his subjects. And he will even seek to enforce acknowledgement of his greatness from these subjects. That's just what godless governments do. And this takes us to verses 4 through 6 of the chapter. It reads, And a herald proclaimed aloud and said, quote, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Just reminding us of the vast extent of the Babylonian Empire here. But you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. 
And now here comes the threat. And whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So Nebuchadnezzar has not only erected a monument to his own greatness, but now he is ordering everyone in his kingdom to worship that image on pain of death. But friends, what does the first commandment say? God's first commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment, You shall not make for yourself any graven image, not of things in heaven, not of things on the earth, not of things under the earth. You shall not bow down or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So Nebuchadnezzar's actions on this day were in absolute defiance of the will of the God of heaven. And Nebuchadnezzar's aim on this day was nothing less than to take God's place in the hearts of his subjects. He wanted to be the center of their universe. He wanted their worship and their unquestioning obedience. He wanted to be their God. This is what all godless leaders do. They want your absolute, unqualified devotion. And with it, your unquestioning obedience. Nebuchadnezzar's actions on this day forced every person in his kingdom to make a choice. Whom would they serve? Would they serve the God of heaven? Or would they serve the king of Babylon? Who would they obey? What would they obey? Would they obey God's commandments or would they obey a king's decree? Well, what will the people of Babylon choose? Verse 7 tells us the vast majority of them chose Nebuchadnezzar over God. It reads, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the instruments, all the people, nation, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, what a tragic scene. A godless king, full of self-importance, has erected a colossus as a testament to his own greatness. He has issued a decree that everyone in his kingdom must bow before it. And now, countless numbers of Babylon's leading figures are obeying the order. Falling prostrate before an object made of wood and overlaid with metal. Tragic scene. Why would they do it? Why would they bow before a man-made statue? Well, it's because the fear of God, the, the fear of death is a powerful thing. Fear of death can cause people to abandon long-held principles, to remain silent when they should speak up. It can cause them to submit themselves to unjust laws, to commit atrocities, and even to bow before false gods. Just look at modern history for your proof. Look at Nazi Germany. Look at the modern Russian offensive in Ukraine. The fear 
of what a government can do to you if you don't comply can cause people to do some pretty terrible things. And on this day, the fear of death caused hundreds, perhaps thousands, of Babylon's leading figures to fall on their faces before an idol. Moving to verse 8, though, we see not everyone complied. Verse 8 says, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, those are Babylonians, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the instruments shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, verse 12 there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So out of this massive crowd of hundreds or thousands of people, there are three godly young men who will not comply. Three men. They refuse to comply with Nebuchadnezzar's decree, not because they hate Nebuchadnezzar, and not because they wish to be rebels, but rather they refuse because they love the God of heaven more. And when faced with the choice of whether to obey God or a man, they choose to obey God. They love God that much. They will not violate God's commandments even under the threat of death. What a model of godly courage. See, these three men knew what was right, and then they literally stood up for it. Three courageous men surrounded by a society that had gone completely mad. <laughs> but they're not going to conform. They're going to stand up. Even if they're the only ones in their entire society to do it. They're going to stand up for what is true and what is right and what is good. They will not accept Nebuchadnezzar's order. And for their faithfulness, my friends, they are slandered and sold out by their fellow citizens. Look again at verse 8. It says, At that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And the, the Aram, the uh, word here translated maliciously accused. Uh, it's an Aramaic term. It literally means to cut someone in pieces or to, to chew them up into pieces. It's very similar to our modern expression to chew someone out. So we've got these three godly men. They receive an order from their king that they cannot comply with because they would have to forsake their God to do it. And what is the result? The society around them begins chewing them out for it. They chew them out. 
And they go right to King Nebuchadnezzar and they say, Do you know, O king, that there are three people in your kingdom who won't bow down to you? Then they start slandering these men to the king. They don't care about you. They don't care about your government. They don't care about your gods. They don't care about your building projects. They don't care about your statue. They think nothing of you. What we're witnessing here, my friends, is a combination of jealousy and bigotry on the part of these Chaldeans. They are jealous of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, these are Jewish men. They, they were dragged forcibly into Babylon. They didn't even want to be there. Then for reasons the Chaldeans can't understand, the king of Babylon gave them great positions of power in his capital city. So if these Chaldeans can, can cut these men down a few pegs, they are more than happy to do it. They are jealous of these men. But I say it's also bigotry driving them. They, they hate these three men just because they are Jews. They hate them for worshiping a different God. And so if they can ruin these men, they will. And you know, church family, you will experience all of this too if you choose faithfulness to God over conformity to a culture that is going mad all around you. You will face their hostilities, their slander, their evil speaking. Some of them might even try to drag you before the governing authorities, try to ruin your life just because you want to be faithful to God. This is what happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If we look at verse 13 now, okay, it's, the text said they had, they had taken their, uh, their situation to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 13 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought so they brought these men before the king. Have you noticed how Nebuchadnezzar is always in a rage? <laughs> That's another characteristic of godless leaders. They're never happy. Nebuchadnezzar wants every single person, no exception, to be worshiping him, nobody else, and he just can't handle it when there are a couple of guys out there who refuse to comply. Godless governments grow furious when they cannot have the absolute, unquestioned obedience of all of their subjects. And so look what Nebuchadnezzar does here. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? Like, you've got to be kidding me, right? This can't be real. Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Verse 15, now, if you're ready when you hear the sound of all the instruments to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. Look, we, we can forget this whole, ins, this, this whole instance if you'll just start worshiping it now. Then he goes on, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then he asks this fateful question. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So now things have really gotten personal, haven't they? 
It was just an order given to the multitudes that three young Jewish men could not comply with. But now these three men have been dragged into the very presence of Nebuchadnezzar. And now he is looking these three men eye to eye, and he is saying to them, point blank, I want to have God's place in your life. Worship me or die. That is the ultimatum he has given. Now, friends, what is a righteous person supposed to do in such circumstances? What are you supposed to do? Well, I think you know the answer. Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. Chapter 21 of our church's Confession of Faith says this, Quote, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. Furthermore, to believe false doctrines or to obey unjust commands against one's conscience is to require an implicit faith in the command giver and absolute and blind obedience to men. It is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. So, my friends, when a godless government requires you to do something which God forbids, or when it seeks to forbid that which God requires, and even when you have an entire society around you that has decided to go along with this, even in those cases, the only righteous response is to refuse compliance with the order. Is he better to die right with God than to extend your earthly life and lose your soul? And so, verses 16 to 18, these three men resisted. Look at, verse, look at the verses. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice, these three men are so respectful. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, O king. They really do have, have genuine love for this man. They respect him as the king. And their heart disposition is, is such that they want to be able to obey all of the king's orders. But they just can't. He has forced them to make a choice between him and God. And they're going to choose God every single time. That's what faithful people do. And so they come to the king with this pathos and they say, O oh, king, we wish we could comply, but we cannot. Nebuchadnezzar, you are our king, but you are not our God. And our worship is for him alone. If that means that you must throw us into your fiery furnace, then so be it. And then they say, if God wants to rescue us from your furnace, he can do that. He is strong enough that he can rescue. But even if God should decide to let us perish in the flames, 
know this, Nebuchadnezzar, we will die without regret because we cannot worship you or your gods. Now, these words were important, my friends. You see, we Christians believe that God has the power to deliver us from persecution. He really does. But we also understand that God may not deliver us from persecution. God, in His good and gracious will, may decide to allow His people to walk through the fires, to experience persecution, even to endure a so-called premature death. God may will that for His people. We must be okay with that. Because, you see, God doesn't exist to serve us. He's not there to make our lives longer happier? No, we exist to serve God. We exist for His glory, as we read earlier in the service. And if persecution and death would bring Him more glory than deliverance and a long, easy life, then we must be prepared to say, yes, by God's grace, I can face that trial. I can do it. Like the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, verse 24, we must be able to say, quote, I do not count my life as precious to myself, but only that I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus. You see, long life is not the ultimate goal. Faithfulness is. And while that may sound radical to some, this is really just basic discipleship. Jesus said, whoever would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. This is basic discipleship. But you may wonder what good can come from persecution and death. Well, here's the good that can come. When a person chooses faithfulness to God, even at the cost of his own life, it shows the world that there may really be something to this God. It shows onlookers that this God is so valuable that as long as we still have Him, we don't need anything else. Witnesses to, to the persecuted and persevering see that and they think, wow, this God is something. Look what, look what this believer is losing. They're losing their, their health. They're losing their possessions. They're losing their reputations. They're losing their jobs. It looks like they're going to lose their life, but they won't let go of their God. They keep worshiping Him, and they're doing it with joy. How can this be? It must be that this God is really precious. Maybe I should be looking into this God myself. When they see a believer persevering with joy in the midst of persecution, they say, wow, look at how this God makes people courageous when they trust in Him. Look how this God takes away a person's fear of death. Look how it gives them joy in the midst of trials. And on and on it goes. It can cause people to want to learn more about this God. It can even lead to a great spiritual awakening among many people. That's why Tertullian, one of the great church fathers, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So often it is when the world watches the people of God suffering that they are finally drawn to that God in faith. You see, God knows how to glorify Himself in the midst of a godless government. He knows how to glorify Himself through His people 
in trials and persecutions and even through their premature deaths. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood this. That's why they said, O king, we understand we're in trouble. And you may have to throw us into a furnace, but we're okay with that. We will, we will die in the furnace if that's what God wills, because we know that he can glorify himself through it. You just wait and see what happens next in your kingdom after this. They had faith in God. Now, friends, here in the States, we've been very fortunate for a long time. Our American identities and our Christian identities have almost never been in conflict with each other. In fact, many of our nation's leaders have even been committed Christians. But times are changing. And hostility to biblical Christianity grows by the day. And the time may come, barring another great awakening, when we are confronted with the same choice as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We may come to the point where, where we must say to our governing authorities, I must obey God rather than you. And you must do what you think is right and know, O leader, that God can deliver us from what you intend to do. But even if he doesn't, we will not change. We will not stop worshiping our God because he can glorify himself even through our deaths. My friends, don't wait for the moment of crisis to come before you try to figure out in your mind how you're going to respond. No, get it settled now even today, so that if that time comes where you are facing down the fiery furnace, that you will be ready with your answer. Let's get that matter settled now. Well, next time we're back in Daniel, we'll see how things worked out for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Today, we'll have to leave the story here. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the courage displayed by these three godly men. And Lord, though our experience here in the States is vastly different from from their experience, we know that things change. And oftentimes, life can go from bad to worse, or governments can go from, from sound to corrupt. And so, Lord, might you help us to settle in our minds and hearts right here and now what we would do if we found ourselves in a situation like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Lord, help us to be so captured with your greatness that we would no longer fear the threats of a king or a president or a judge, that we would simply... Continue to be faithful to you and trust that you will use our faithfulness in ways we, we could not even imagine in those moments. You could use our faithfulness, even our premature deaths, to bring about awakening the likes of which the world has never seen. Or at the very least, Lord, you would offer the world a testimony that you are more valuable than anything else that people should consider you. Lord, we thank you for the joy that you give to your people.
Pray that you would help our church as it seeks to be faithful to you. Help us to be faithful um, in communicating the gospel message to our friends and our family, neighbors and co-workers. Lord, help us to use all of our public platforms to broadcast your fame, to call others to you. And Lord, might you be pleased to use us as we, by your grace, seek to be faithful. Use us to make a name for yourself in Marshall and Olivet and Albion and Tecancha and Homer and Battle Creek and in every other city represented by this ministry. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.